Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another show for The Learning Curve. And this one is going to open a little more somber than our usual openings, in part because of what took place last week at our nation's capital. For starters, my condolences to the family, friends, and loved ones of those who uh, were killed in Washington, D.C., um, on Capitol Hill and in the surrounding parts that took place up there. Let me also say that I look forward to a time when our children can see better examples of what adults should be doing to try to work out their differences. Surely not everyone who was at the place stormed the building and for the ones who did, uh, the retribution, both legal and otherwise, is already taking place. And so I wanted to note that and wanted to say that as we move toward inaugurating a new president, a vice president, bringing in a new administration, that we can have this very heavy cloud uh, that's weighed on us, particularly heavy in 2020 for a host of reasons, that we can see that dissipate. And hopefully the things that we do here on this show through our guests, through my conversations with my wonderful co-host, Cara, through our networks that we can try to bring some sanity to what has really become very insane. <laughs> yeah, that's the word for it. Um, it's saddening and shocking. I, I mean, I know many of us, many of our listeners and you too, Gerard, have spent a lot of time uh, on Capitol Hill. I was a page in 1992 seeing mm-hmm. some of the, some of the images from the building was just, um, I mean, listen, we were all, uh, not all of us, um, I would say that almost every American was probably deeply, deeply troubled um, by what we saw. And, and, you know, one of the things that's very relevant to education here is, number one, it's pretty clear that we've got a lot of work to do in educating this country, people, in this, the, the children of this country about democracy, what it means and how it works. Um, I, I think that we could probably point to many failures of our education system as being culpable in part for what happened. Mm-hmm. Um Thinking about how we talk to kids about this, uh, you know, uh, my 10 year old is just old enough to have a, an emerging understanding of what happened. And it is um, it's, it's very frightening for adults, but it's also very frightening for children. And I guess, you know, the last thing I'll say is that I hope that there's a lot of talk about moving forward and healing the nation. And, and yes, all of that needs to happen. Um, I also think that we need to focus on accountability, too, because, as you said, um, those who those who betrayed this country in the way that they did in this past week need to be need to be held for account for the damage done for the lives lost. Um, it, it's just what a week. And one one that um, I certainly never thought I would see in my lifetime. I hope we'd never see it again. But um, and we've got an interesting guest today who I think is going to going to talk to us about. Um, we always have interesting guests, but particularly. Yes. You know, particularly interesting at this moment, and certainly this guest has been booked for several weeks. So I, I don't know how we keep doing it, Gerard, but the timing is right. So, at any rate, back to you. So my story of the week is uh, more from my home state of Virginia, and this is from the American Federation for Children, January eleventh, twenty twenty one. Title: Virginian Support Funding Students, Not Systems, and. This is based upon a poll uh, from 625 registered voters uh, talking about school choice and funding. And in one question, it says, on average, American taxpayers spend $15,424 per student nationwide on K-12 public education. 
Would you support or oppose giving parents a portion of those funds to use for home, virtual, or private education if public schools do not reopen in-person classes? Support for it statewide, 61%. And there was an interesting regional break. Uh, Richmond metro area said 60%. Northern Virginia, 55%. Roanoke, Southwest, 68%. Uh, it was, you know, two-thirds women, uh, you know, it was 66% male, 57% female, and uh, age range in terms of race, 60% white, 60% black. In terms of party affiliation, uh, 73% Republicans, 53% Democrat, 59% independent. And here's another question I found interesting. Recent federal legislation gave governors new funding they could use for K-12 education. Some governors have let families control the funds to purchase education technology and materials, private school tuition, and home education. Would you support or oppose Governor Northam sending funding directly to families and allowing them to choose how to use those funds to support their child's education? Statewide, 51% support it. Um, in Richmond, metro area, 54%. Northern Virginia, 46 So there's a difference there. But in both questions, uh, you know, a little more than the majority uh, said yes. And as someone who's been involved in Virginia politics and policymaking, these are, let's just say, encouraging signs for how we think about funding education and how families should fund it. So often we say school choice or parental choice, and we understand there's some nuances, but what the pandemic has really done is opened up how we fund schools and should we fund systems or students. And according to the FC poll, people seem to be looking more at students. Yes, they do. And, you know, not to throw too much shade at your beautiful home state of Virginia, but not known for being the choice friendliest place in the country. <laughs> but I think I think that your point is is the right one. It's that even I think even before most polls show it depends on how you word the question, right? Show that parents support choices. But now I believe it's my opinion that um, you know, those who might have been traditionally opposed, there's a new ed choice poll out by the way, survey out that that shows that um, Democrats actually support uh, direct payments to families in this type of school choice the most, which is surprising. But it's all sort of in the wording, right? Because the opposition has so um, effectively co-opted the idea of choice that I don't think parents understand what they mean and what it means anymore. So it's sort of like when you say to a parent, especially to your point, Gerard, in in this current moment, hey, wouldn't you like to have some control of of the funds that are being spent on your child's education? Um, Yeah, of course we would. And you know, I think that it's too, in, in some places, this is going to be about not this public-private divide, this this ongoing war, this conversation about privatization versus public goods. It's, it's, a, it's a false narrative, right? This is about parent-centeredness. And so I think that that's incredibly encouraging. I will say the one thing I am a bit discouraged by, unfortunately, is that to one of the questions asked, pointing out that a couple of governors, specifically Governor Stitt in Oklahoma, Governor Little in Idaho, and um, Governor Abbott in Texas had approved the use of GEARS funds for direct payments to um, to families, and um, and they're going to be they'll be the only governors that will be allowed to do that with this new round of GEARS funding. So um, the new stimulus package expressly prohibits governors from using the second round to make direct payments to families unless they did it the first time around, and I just think that that is. Um, 
it's an indication to me, and I'll do a little plug here. I've got a, a blog coming out tomorrow with Excel and Ed that talks about this. It's an indication to me that um, parents might be thinking in terms of students, not systems, but unfortunately, too many in our government still are not. Um, so that's my little rant on that. For <laughs> I've got, I've got a, my story of the week is, you know, I mean, everything's about the pandemic now, but this one in, in Ed Week, uh, really, really interesting. Something that I just hadn't give too, given too much thought to by Benjamin Harold. And um, the title of the story is Not Going Back from Remote and Hybrid Learning, districts say. And, you know, the, the crux of this is saying that at this point, um, it's not that everywhere, you know, hybrid learning or remote learning is so fabulous for all kids. It's gotten better. And for some kids, it's working. And I think you, my friend Gerard, talked about this on a prior um, episode of The Learning Curve, that you hoped some facets of this would stay, that remote learning does work really well for kids. But the truth is, at this point, we are almost a year in, believe it or not, and it's going to be um. longer. I know. It's <laughs> like, gasp. Um, but that we've invested so much time and money and human capital into getting this right, that there is literally a vested interest in, in seeing this work, not, not necessarily in its current form um, going forward. And I think that that is a really, really important point. And so they, they talk with um, Pedro Martinez, the superintendent of San Antonio Independent School District. And, you know, he was, he's pointing out that like, this is, it, we, it would be a waste to let all that we've learned go and to let all of this material, the infrastructure that we've built go to the wayside. And so I think that there is something here, um, you know, and it's got to be beyond just using remote learning for school, for snow dates, <laughs> stuff like that. But we can all <laughs> think of, which is like my favorite thing, of course, in some places like um, <clears throat> the, when, where I sit right now, it was like, mm -hmm. no, we still need a traditional snow day. Okay, because you didn't miss enough school already. But um, you know, I think that this is really interesting. But it also opens up conversations about, you know, who's who, what private providers do we need to effective to effectively build remote learning systems and infrastructures and hybrid learning? You know, we we talk about, as I mentioned earlier, this privatization versus public good. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are a huge number of private providers that have been playing and will continue to play a very important role in making remote learning and hybrid learning effective and hopefully even more effective. And, you know, to, to your story about direct payments for parents and, and supporting money into their pockets, we know that a lot of parents who can afford it have already been taking advantage of using some of those private providers by paying out of pocket when their kids weren't getting what they needed from the district. So I think this is a very interesting story. Here's the one thing I would say that was missing from this, and it is parents. It's parents themselves. So one of the things that I would encourage all of us, including superintendents, including you know those who are writing about it, and yes, our wonk class, to think about is if indeed remote and hybrid learning are here to stay in one way, shape, or form, in one way or another, what is that going to look like for parents? And also, to what extent are parents going to be able to control what it looks like and when it happens? Because some parents want it, not all parents want it. And there's a lot in here that we're um, that ignores the fact that we're still also in the midst, not just of an education crisis, but a childcare crisis. And if anybody asks me to make my four-year-old do remote learning, I, that's not going to work. So um, I highly recommend this story to our listeners. I think it's a good one to think through. And I think we're going to be um, diving into this a lot more in, in the weeks and months to come. 
Hybrid and online learning is here to stay. Uh, it was here before the pandemic. I think the pandemic has just opened it up to more uh, customer-friendly thinking school systems and people. And it's worth noting that when you look at uh, the number of schools that decided not to open for good reason in many cases, um, take a look at higher ed and the number of students who are taking online classes. That's gone up. And so what I'm looking at is higher ed. And I'm seeing how they're adjusting and how they're making professional school and graduate school available online in ways people thought was unthinkable even five years ago. It's here to stay. And I think in some ways, K-12 is going to learn a lot from higher ed on this one. Oh, absolutely. Remember when people used to make fun of University of Phoenix, Gerard? <laughs> right it's never going to work no one's going to go oh, online never. and i remember i remember our good friend charlie glenn saying back in the day oh you just watch university of phoenix is going to eat everybody to lunch and you know it, as with most things charlie glenn was right <laughs> so all right we've got um with us today coming up right after this break we are going to be speaking with ignat solzhenitsyn and he is i mean hugely accomplished person in himself. He is a pianist. He is the conductor laureate of the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, among other things. But he's also the son of the Nobel Prize winning Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And so we're going to be talking to him about his father, about his own work, and um, and a lot about history. I think we'll all hear some parallels to the to the current moment if if you know um, his work at all. So looking forward right after this. Ignat Solzhenitsyn is president of the Alexander Solzhenitsyn Center and an active conductor and pianist. Mr. Solzhenitsyn has appeared with numerous major orchestras, including those of Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Los Angeles, Montreal, Toronto, London, Paris, I I can't even say them all, St. Petersburg, Israel, and Sydney. And he's collaborated with many distinguished conductors and soloists. A winner of the Avery Fisher Career Grant, Solzhenitsyn is a conductor laureate of the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia and serves on the faculty of the Curtis Institute of Music. Ignat Solzhenitsyn, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. So let's let's just jump right in. Uh, we want to speak first about um, your Nobel Prize winning father. And uh, some would say that he was perhaps the most influential writer in the world over the last 60 years because his books demolished sort of these utopian myths about the Soviet Union. Um, as you know, this is a show where we talk a lot about schools and education. So I'm curious to know what you think American educators and students should remember, should know about his life, his work, and his battle with Soviet communism. Well, I think uh, maybe two important things come to mind. One is just the nature of communism itself. For many reasons that are uh, truly, truly complex and some understandable and some not so understandable uh, for some disturbing reasons, uh, communism is still... Uh, gets a somewhat of a free pass mm. uh, in uh, in uh, certainly in uh, academia, certainly in in uh, the fields of uh, unfortunately in, in in education in general. And often one hears, and and children are taught that well, communism is a wonderful, what a wonderful idea. It doesn't seem to have worked. At least they concede that. 
but uh, but surely the idea is 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 lovely, and and that's the first mistake. That's the first error. Uh, yes, communism has has uh, certain points uh, that, of course, are appealing to any fair-minded person, but the system taken as a whole, including and especially the ideology of communism, in other words, the theory of communism, before it was ever put into practice, it's an evil system, a system that de denies the very nature of humanity, that denies the uh, power and the sanctity, if you will, of the individual, the ability of individuals to make choices outside of the groups that they belong to. There is the militant atheism that's built into communism and so forth and so forth. So I suppose that's the first thing to remember is that communism was and is an evil invention that seeks to destroy the very essence of humanity, the, the, the soul or the, 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 whatever one wants to call it, the, the inner person himself. And then with regard to Solzhenitsyn's testimony against communism, his witness of communism, there I would say that, of course, his, his works and his experience and his extraordinary art in bringing that across to readers uh, speaks, speaks for itself. And anybody who, who, who reads even a few pages of Solzhenitsyn then is... Uh, I think, usually convinced very quickly, uh, precisely because the artistic uh, power is so strong. And I would just say that we should remember that the that communism is not just a historical artifact, because it's being practiced today in different forms, but none of them happy ones, of course. In places like Red China, in places like North Korea, Cuba, and, and several other countries. So that's one. So many people are still living under communism. And then two, that the weakness of human nature and our worst tendencies that allow a totalitarian system like that to flourish uh, are still present. They are ever with us. Human nature itself doesn't change. And therefore, a study of the totalitarian systems of the past is essential, it seems to me, not just for its own sake and for the sake of knowing our past, but, as is so often said, not to repeat those mistakes as we go forward. It's, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about that as somebody who once taught in a former communist country um, in the late 90s and came up in the 80s. I would argue not only that um, that much of what you said about how communism is taught, at least in in the public school that I attended, um, is right on. But but in fact, that very little was said about it at all. Even though it was the 1980s, it was um, there was there was probably just simply not enough education about what it really uh, meant and was. You you mentioned um, you know totalitarianism. And and your father, his his historic ten volume novel, The Red Wheel, is in the process of being translated into English. And um, 
I'm, I'm curious for you to comment on what the Red Wheel teaches us about the origins of Soviet totalitarianism. Yes, the Red Wheel is is, an, is a work that is essential to understand the Russian Revolution. But really, as exactly as you say, to understand not just how it happened, but 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 what it led to, and why it led to the great catastrophe uh, of of uh, of Russia, and 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 really of 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 so much of the world as a result of the. Uh, of, of this precipitous fall of Russia into uh, communist uh, 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 dictatorship. So the Red Wheel is the story of those, really those months in 1917 when it all came tumbling down. But it's also very much a retrospective from 1917 looking still further back to understand, well, why did these bread queues in St. Petersburg that really people just lined up for a few hours to get some bread, not ideal, but nothing that should lead to a, uh, a cosmic event. Uh, how did this, why, why did it tip over? And he goes back and he looks at, of course, the great war, which was then raging and Russia's, what he viewed as Russia's very ill-fated entry into the war on behalf, on behalf of a kind of a dubious, uh, a, a, a dubiously vital, shall we say, friendship with uh, Serbia. And there was that, of course, pan-Slavist idea that all Slavic nations are, are brothers. And, and of course, uh, Serbs were also Orthodox. And the idea was just to defend Serbia against Austria, but was that really in the Russian national interest? And of course, leaders always have to balance, let's say, uh, let's say Christian ethics, if, if, they're, if we're fortunate enough that they have something like that guiding them, but also with practical uh, political and, and, and geopolitical realities. And so Russia's entry into the war weakened her tremendously and uh, allowed for more and more discontent to, uh, to, to grow in Russia. But then why did Russia enter the war? Because there were no leaders smart enough to keep her out. Well, there was such a leader, Pyotr Stolypin, a great reformist prime minister from 1906 to 11, who was assassinated. And so he studies that question. And essentially the, the tantalizing what if that had Stolypin not been killed and had he remained in power, he would not have let Russia enter the war, at least not for a, for such a reason as it did, and things might have been different. But then going back, why was the the whole Tsarist regime under constant attack from, well, from intellectual radicals? And he analyzes the ossified uh, kind of uh, the ossified nature of the regime. It's the re really, really the, res the, the slow and, and uh, ineffective response of the whole apparatus of government to needed reforms, to land reform, to uh, financial reform, to 
actually reform of the systems of government where uh, Russia did not get a parliament as such until 1905. And even then it was too much of a, of a toothless parliament. So the idea of, of, of autocracy and how long could that really last into the deep 19th century and into the 20th century. And so as he goes back, he sees this parallel forces of a government apparatus that is unable to deal with modernity, that is unable to change, to be nimble, to adapt, also unable to, uh, to uh, defend its actions in a way that would make sense to this uh, kind of bien-pensant society, and indeed to the West, who is observing Russia from the side and wondering if, uh, if Russia will kind of get its act together. And so you have the czarist apparatus, but then on the other side, you have these increasing, increasingly radicalized intellectuals who very smoothly cross the line into outright terrorism, where, of course, the actual uh, uh, people who carry out the bombings and the shootings of, of uh, dukes and policemen and uh, government figures are not that many, but the people who support them are very many. The people who applaud are, 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 uh, think that they're doing uh, good work. And so that, uh, that a standoff between the increasingly, uh, uh, as I said, ex increasingly ex extreme opposition that really stopped at nothing to get what it wanted, and uh, a, a government that wasn't able to respond quickly. This is what led uh, to the catastrophe of revolution. Uh, and then that revolutionary spirit of complete intolerance, of a complete fanaticism, then found its, shall we say, ultimate flowering in the Bolshevik takeover and in Lenin's vision for for Russia, uh, eventually for the Soviet Union, uh, and of course uh, for Stalin's uh, perfection uh, of Lenin's vision. Wow, I, I think that our listeners are going to have a lot to com contemplate after listening to to what you just said. Um, since we have limited time, I, I need to ask you. You know, your father wasn't just <laughs> he. He also had strong words for um, for. Cold War leaders for Western democracies. And he, in a, in a famous 1978 commencement speech at Harvard entitled The World Split Apart, he warned about the crippling short-sightedness of Western democracies, the loss of will, a potential decline in courage. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? And, and what are the implications um, for, for the West that, that he, he was telling us about decades ago? Yes, the Harvard Address uh, is uh, really a remarkable text and one that uh, repays, very much repays rereading as, as the decades go by since uh, the 6th of June, 1978, when he delivered it. it. Sometimes it's misrepresented or just misunderstood as some kind of a, an attack on the West. And certainly it was not. 
In other words, in his own words, Solzhenitsyn came to that rostrum, to that speech, and, and then to other speeches or essays that he wrote, but let's focus on Harvard, as, as a friend of the West, as a guest of the West, but uh, as, an, as, as an enemy of the weakness of the West in the face of the, the dual threats at that time, the external threat, obviously, of communism and of the red wave, that famous uh, domino effect that maybe some listeners and students of history will still remember, that idea that, that expansionist, uh, militant communism was quite literally rolling over country after country in Africa, in Indochina, uh, in Latin America, were attempting to do so. And there was a very real question, even in the, in the heart of, 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 of Europe, even at the edge of Europe, on the western edge of Europe, Portugal and Greece, and to an extent Spain earlier, of course, were under direct threat to, to, topple, to be toppled and to fall under communism. So there was that external threat that my father felt, especially at that time during that malaise of the 70s, uh, the post-Vietnam syndrome, whatever one wishes to call it, that the, that much of the West wasn't serious enough, wasn't fully engaged or fully willing to understand the nature of the enemy and to understand what might be required in order to defend and protect those freedoms that Perhaps we're becoming uh, uh, that we're, we're being take, taken for granted. So there was that external warning, if you will, and then maybe the more complicated and more difficult to hear, I would think, uh, message about the internal fragility of the Western system meaning just obviously the general democracy slash uh, market, free market system, the, the fragility of that system, if it's to be practiced without a, an ethical or moral core at its center. And so in that speech, Solzhenitsyn looks back and suggests that that, well, as everybody knows, or as everybody used to know, uh, these Western values grew out of, they did grow out of Judeo-Christian values. They did grow out of that heritage. And as, again, as everybody should know, uh, the American founding documents in particular are quite explicitly, it seems to me, based on those values and articulate uh, the continuity of the American experiment with the political, but also spiritual heritage of the preceding centuries. And, and what Solzhenitsyn says is make sure that you're not forgetting that. And if you are forgetting that, or to the extent that Americans, American in particular, but Western society has become too litigious to the extent that it has become too materialistic. And he, there's that great line where he says, 
if man were born to be happy, he would not be born to die. Which I don't think we ought to take that as as to strive for unhappiness, but, but just to say that there must be more that, and with, with all respect to the Declaration of Independence, but the pursuit of happiness, and indeed in the Declaration, as I read it, that is not the number one goal, and certainly it's one of several. So this idea of pursuit of happiness, yes, but at, in, in context of perhaps uh, 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 so, something that is more than uh, egotism and more than uh, selfishness and more than materialistic pursuit of my well-being at the expense of yours, not to mention at the expense of perhaps my soul. To follow up to the question about his commencement address at Harvard, let's stay a little, uh, let's go a little further north and talk about uh, New England, but particularly Vermont. This past fall, you authored a Wall Street Journal op-ed accompanying the release of your father's memoir, Between Two Millstones, book two, covering his family's 20-year exile in rural Vermont. In two addresses to Vermont town meetings, he spoke about the vital importance of local self-government. Could you talk briefly about this new memoir, the lessons he drew from his American exile, and what it was like for your family living in New England? The memoir is a continuation of The Oak and the Calf, a book that perhaps many of your listeners will be familiar with, uh, a, a, a dynamic and, and uh, kind of a page-turning uh, 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 memoir uh, about his last 15 years in the Soviet Union, his fight uh, against uh, the dragon, as he called it, against the Soviet regime and, and the, the kind of unlikely victories that he was able to, uh, to have and certainly his share of defeats. Uh, Between Two Millstones picks up the story from literally from the day of his exile, arrest and exile to the West. And uh, Between Two Millstones, that title is because, and that a little bit we've already touched on this notion that he felt somewhat caught between between two worlds, but really it's 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 Russia, historical Russia, if you will, that's caught, in other words, the real Russia, the Russian people that are caught between, on the one hand, obviously the brutally oppressive millstone of of communism that they brought upon themselves, but nonetheless, that's now for seventy years. Uh, uh, oppressing them and grinding them into a into a pulp, and on the other side, the Western millstone, uh, which uh, is is of course harder to define. It's it's not uh, uh, physically oppressive in that way, but the idea that Russia is still being rejected, that Russia, uh, that the the difference between Russian and Soviet is not properly articulated. And even a, a great uh, anti the great anti-communist president Ronald Reagan often would refer to Russians or even kind of disparagingly would say Ruskies, and and that's fine. But 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 the idea that well, Russian the Russians are the people, the Soviets 
the Soviet system is the is is the one that's oppressing uh, much of the world, but Russians first and foremost. So between two millstones, it's it's hard for to find for Russia and by extension for Solzhenitsyn as a member of the Russian nation who's been tossed out uh, into the West to find uh, find a place find a place to call home. And he even says at one point in the memoir, the world is large, but there's nowhere to go. So between two millstones, uh, and it focuses on the 20 years of his exile. So from 1974 until 1994, when after the fall of communism, he was able to go back to Russia. And of course, much of those years were indeed spent in rural Vermont, as you point out. And you mentioned the uh, the, the town meetings, he, there, of course, again, listeners will know about the great New England tradition of, of town meeting, uh, certainly alive and well in Vermont. And uh, Solzhenitsyn went to the first town meeting after he arrived in Vermont, after we arrived in Vermont, uh, because uh, there was some issues with uh, snowmobilers who were unhappy that he had put up a chain link fence that interfered with some of their trails. And of course, the reason for the fence was for him just to have privacy and to be able to uh, uh, write undisturbed, you know, first of all, uh, you know, really by by kind of by journalists and by press who were at that time just constantly coming in in, in waves, uh, sort of to, to scheduled and unscheduled, mostly unscheduled. Uh, and then there were concerns about security and, and, and possibly uh, KGB actions and things like that. So so uh, he went to town meeting just to apologize and to say, look, I'm sorry I've had to put this fence up uh, and, and I certainly want to be as good a neighbor as I can be. And, and uh, anyway, he gave a, gave a lovely speech uh, at that first meeting. And then all those years later, uh, in the weeks before he went back to Russia, he came again to town meeting and asked to speak. And he spoke eloquently in, in, in gratitude to the townspeople for having welcomed him and for having understood his that he was on a mission to write the Red Wheel and 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 to to write to be a, a living memory of Russia and uh, uh, so 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 those two kind of form the bookends of his time in 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 Vermont and as far as the town meeting tradition he was very impressed. Uh, not just from those meetings, but from his study and from from his understanding of how that local self-government works in New England. He had seen something similar in Switzerland during the two years that we lived there and the very strong uh, bottom-up uh, kind of system where the, the more local the government, the more it affects people's day-to-day life. To the extent that he felt very much that he wished that these, uh, in some shape or form, that these ideas or these methods of government, of self-governance, could be applied in a future free Russia. And I think largely we're still waiting for that to happen. But nonetheless, he had these very positive, very positive impressions of real democracy at work. If we stick with in between two millstones, your father discussed the education you and your brothers received at home, including from an early age, reading the classic works of William Shakespeare, Leo Tolstoy, and others. He also expressed reservations about American public schools and their lack of academic rigor compared to schooling in Russia. 
Could you talk about how your parents educated you, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of your American education, and how you decided to become a classical musician and conductor? Well, as far as uh, as far as my own uh, my own life and my own yes, my my career choice, my choice of choice of path, uh, that happened uh, really quite accidentally, or perhaps providentially, because there was a piano that came as part of the furniture in the farmhouse that my parents bought in Vermont. Uh, and there was furniture left, just it came as is, and there was a, a baby grand piano. I was attracted to it. I wanted to play it. I was fascinated by it. And uh, it, it was it just was my passion from very early age. As far as education, outside, uh, non-music education or regular education, if you will, well, yes, uh, the the basic average Soviet education, leaving aside, of course, the appalling indoctrination in in uh, Marxism and the rest of it. But as far as the three R's, as far as basically learning to 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 be a, a, a capable and intelligent uh, human being, uh, at least uh, outside of the of the really of the moral dimension, uh, Soviet education was very good. And they definitely, they meaning my parents definitely found the rigors of it, of, of an education lacking in uh, what they saw and what they understood us to be learning in, in American, in public school, at least, at least where we were growing up. And so they were able both working from home to supplement our education with whatever they knew, whatever they were trained in, or even had some decent knowledge of, they tried to pass along to us. And so with my mother, it was first and foremost, the Russian language, naturally, particularly since we were in exile, and there was not a Russian community around us. It was memorizing poetry, it was uh, reciting poetry, reading literature naturally the language dictation handwriting cursive grammar everything that you would expect and with my father it was more uh, scientific subjects astronomy physics uh, geometry and those were wonderful uh wonderful for times to, for, for us to, 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 you know, to have ex, sort of extra time to spend with our parents in that uh, wonderful way of learning. Uh, and also, of course, for the, for the knowledge itself. Uh, we were, we were, I think, fortunate to receive that kind of early version of homeschooling in addition to our, uh, uh, what we were learning in the, in the, in the schools. Well, I would think that even in the in the pain that some parents are feeling right now with with uh, remote learning and the pandemic, um, they're experiencing a little bit of those sweet moments that you you just described. Thank you so much for answering both of my questions. And I know that you have a passage that you want to read. It's one of my father's miniatures, also known as prose poems. He wrote a set of them in the 1950s and 60s, and then another set many years later in the 90s after coming back home. They are just from a half a page to three pages long. Uh, they are just what they are, miniatures. And uh, they, they 
each illuminate a wonderful theme or a troubling theme or aspect of, of, of humanity or of the world. So just to read you this one, one of the very shortest, it's called Shaitik. And Shaitik is a very common dog name in, in Russia, sort of like, perhaps like Spot might be in English. Shaitik. Shaitik is an everyman dog. A boy in our yard keeps a little dog called Shaitik on a chain. They tied him up when he was just a puppy. One day I took him some chicken bones while they were warm and smelled good. But the boy had just let the poor creature off his chain for a run. The snow in the yard lay thick and fluffy. Shadik bounded about like a hare on his back legs one minute and his front legs the next, rushing from corner to corner of the yard and back again with snow in his muzzle. He ran to me, the shaggy creature, and jumped all over me, sniffed the bones, and off he went again, up to his belly in snow. I don't want your bones, he seemed to say. Just give me my freedom. Ignat Solzhenitsyn, you have been so generous with your time today. We thank you so much for being with us here on The Learning Curve. And um, it seems like there's a lot more to talk about. So hopefully we can have you back another time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gerard. Thank you, Kara. Appreciate it very much. And for the tweet of the week, mine comes from at College Fix. And they are congratulating two people. Uh, one is College Fix alumnus Kate Hardiman for her work on a new book that's going to offer solutions to the K-12 monolith, as they say. For parents and anyone who cares about public education reform, they should read Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. It is co-authored with um, Arizona Supreme Court Justice Clint Bullock. And he is going back and going to be one of our guests here on uh, the learning curve uh, not too long from now. And so I look forward to seeing him. And those are my tweets. And yeah, Gerard, I am so looking forward to that book. In fact, I was reading about it today. <laughs> Anything by, by Professor Bullock is, um, is, is pretty great. He's, uh, I can't wait to have him on the show because he's such an interesting guy, such a pioneer of, um, in the movement. So many of the things that you and I have been doing professionally for a long time now. And next week, Gerard's, can you believe how many Pulitzer Prize winning authors we have on the show? Can you believe it? The Pioneer team is a Pulitzer Prize magnet. And there you have it. That's Jamie Gass is a Pulitzer Prize magnet. I think that that is exactly right. So, I mean, I I just feel like we constantly get to have these brushes with greatness. I mean, you know, primarily oh. with you, no, Mr. No, no, Robinson. Too late now. <laughs> but oh, doing it all from home like we never get to meet these people in, like in my office but taylor branch is a pulitzer prize winning author best known for his landmark trilogy on the civil rights era america in the king years fittingly um because next week we will be celebrating martin luther king day so gerard until then um stay safe oh and thank your daughters for the bracelets the the, for the holiday bracelets they made they were beautiful your Thank you. Note is in the mail. Awesome. <laughs> 
Till next week. Take care. Take care.